There is uh, something certainly special about singing songs to God, not just about Him, but to Him, and telling Him, "Man, you are you are holy, God. You are, you are, you are everything. You really are, right?" So, very much fits in with what we're going to talk about today. I've been thinking a lot just about uh, Psalm chapter one. And Psalm chapter 1, verse 3 is this incredible verse. It says this, it says, He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And I I like this verse because part of it is it just gives us a reality of the rest of all the Psalms, right? And it's this battle that we have about being planted by the river of life, the river that gives us life, the river river that sustains life. If we're a tree that's planted way out in the desert without any water, we're going to wither, right? We're going to be dried up. But but what this verse is talking about is is, is the psalmist is saying, listen, I want to be by, I want to be near where the life is, where the water is feeding me and sustaining me and and making me fresh and helping me produce this fruit and and basically says, if I'm going to prosper, this is what I have to do. And I love that concept. I love the big idea. And so I've been thinking the last couple of weeks, what does it look like? What does it look like for a church to make sure that it's planted by the river of life, by the streams of water that gives its life so that it can yield fruit in its seasons and so that the church's leaves don't wither and in all that the church does might prosper. So that's kind of my thinking here. And so for the next three weeks, today and two more weeks, I want us to rethink a couple of things. And today what I want us to rethink is just this big idea about worship and what worship is and why we do it and who it's for and all these kind of things, right? I had a professor at college, and I'll never forget this. He said this, worship doesn't just thrill the heart of God. It transforms the minds of men. Worship just doesn't thrill the heart of God, but it transforms us. When we participate and when we are doing this worship thing, guess what? Our our minds are literally transformed. Well, how are they transformed? Well, it's through worship that we recognize God is on the throne. See, we're going to look at a text today, and we get this image of what heaven looks like, and there's this throne room, and then there's this throne, and then there's somebody on the throne, and somebody on the throne, it's God, Right? And so we recognize that God is on the throne, and we understand that He, and that He alone, is able to save us from our trials. See, we try to, we, we go to a lot of things first, right? Often not God first. And we're going to see about a king who actually went to God first. And so what happens is worship, it begins to open our eyes to God's vastness and how big He is and the mysteries of God that are unexplainable, that we can't describe, that we can't necessarily put words to. And there's something incredible, there's something beautiful about the people of God gathering together and worshiping God that's contagious. We just can't get away from it. So I want to look at this king. His name's Hezekiah. And we're going to look at Isaiah 36, verse 4 first. This is what it says. Say to Hezekiah, thus says the king, the king of Assyria. So Assyria, the king of Assyria is told, listen, I want you to go to Hezekiah, and these are some things that I want you to tell him, right? On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt the broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of many who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So basically, God came to the king of Assyria and said, listen, so what I want you to do. 
I want you to go to Hezekiah and I want you to tell him that I'm going to destroy them. Him, the kingdom, and I'm going to take their land. I'm going to do all of these things, right? You guys with me so far? And so what would you do if you were Hezekiah? Probably start preparing for battle, right? Probably prepare for war, right? Probably start strategizing about how you're going to avoid this whooping that's coming your way. True? But that's not what Hezekiah does. We have to go to chapter 37, verse 14 to see this. Look at this. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. He read that the king of Assyria said, listen, we're on our way and we're going to take you down. We're going to take your land down. We're going to take all your people down. We're going to take them. And he read it. And Hezekiah went where? To the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Right? Is that what we do? I mean, seriously, think about it for a moment. Think about it. We get the letter that says your job position is no longer yours. It's being cut. Or you get the report from the doctor that says it's cancer. Or you get the notice in the mail that says that your wife has filed for divorce. Or you get notification from your finance advisor that the stock market has crashed and you've just lost everything you have. Is our first response to go to the house of the Lord and take it before the Lord? See, not usually, not usually. And so it goes on, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, he said, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Please listen to me, is what he says. Give me your eyes and give me your ears, Lord. Please listen to me. Please listen to me. The kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from His hand that all the kingdoms of earth may know that You alone are the Lord. Right? Do you see what's happening here? So in Hezekiah's trouble, we don't find him cowering. We don't find him hiding. We don't find him strategizing. We don't find him fighting. We find Hezekiah worshiping. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the notification he's worshiping and I I love that why why is he doing that because in the throne room when you enter into the throne room of God all of a sudden we're much smaller than we realized and God is much bigger than we ever imagined that's what happens when we are in the presence of God suddenly he is so much bigger than we've ever thought is possible and we are so much smaller than we ever imagined us being how do you like feeling small? Right? Most of us don't. And so why would I enter the presence of God? Because I don't want to feel small. No, no, no. This is the big picture, right? When we're faced with these difficulties, these trials, and these, all these things that happen in real life, we call it life, right? It just does. It just happens. Our first response ought to be like Hezekiah's, and it should be worship. It should be in the presence of God saying, here, here I am. So I want to jump forward. I want to look at Revelation chapter 4 today. Maybe one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, all right? I don't know that for sure. It's just today my favorite, okay? Because I've been in this all week long, and I just, let me read it to you. I want you to imagine that you're John, and you're, you're seeing the things that he's trying to write about. 
In the book of Revelation, you'll often see John says, I looked and I saw and I looked and I saw and I looked and I saw. Well, he's like a kid in a candy store. I mean, he's just been taken up. He's getting ready to, he's able to see heaven, right? He's, he's seeing what's going on on the earth, under the earth, over the earth, all over the earth. And he's saying, I looked and I saw and I looked and I saw and I looked and I saw. And we've spent decades, theologians and, and scholars have spent decades trying to figure it out. I'm like, just picture John. He's an old guy, but just picture him. He's at Disneyland for the first time, all right? And he's just going, whoa. But even heaven can even compare to Disneyland because I, don't, I hope, I hope. I need to be careful how I say that. Disneyland's not like heaven. Anyway, whew, backtrack there for a second. This is what it says. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was at it, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Can you picture being John? I mean, can you imagine... This, this, what he's seen and how overwhelmed he is. He, he gets there and he sees this throne and, he, and he's trying to figure out who's sitting on it, but the someone who's sitting on it is too obvious for him to identify. He doesn't have to guess. He just knows who's there. And so instead, John describes him. He doesn't just tell us it's God. He describes him, right? He says he's like Jasper and he's like Carnelian and there's this rainbow. And Jasper is this precious stone, right? And it looks like an emerald. And Carnelian is this another jewel that's kind of red like a ruby. And then you have this rainbow, but it was different because it was more like emerald. So it's, you got reds and blues and mostly green. And, and what's been happening for decades, the scholars have been trying to figure out, what does this mean? What does this mean? But I think when we ask the question, what does this mean, we're missing the point. I don't believe that that's the point here. John isn't trying to tell us something mysterious. John wants us to take a step back and he wants us just to take in the scene of what he is seeing. It's incredible. What does he want us to know? The stones, these stones, they're valuable. Wow. I mean, if you saw a valuable stone, wouldn't you say, wow? Okay, so say, wow. Oh, you guys are there. Good, 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 right? 
And, and each, each one of them is described with this beautiful description, and it's, it's beautiful and it's lovely. And when you see something beautiful and lovely, we go, ooh, right? There you go. You're catching on. There you go. All right. And, and then everything is translucent, and everything is open, and everything is visible. And so we would say, oh, right? What John wants us to know is that God is the wow and ooh and oh of heaven. That's what he's wanting us to see. He doesn't want us to try to understand all these other things that people try to come up with. He just wants us to take a step back and go, whoa, ooh, oh. This is what's happening here, right? And so just all about the time John catches his breath a little bit, he sees God. And God isn't alone. God is surrounded by 24 elders. And these are the rulers of God's people. They have authority and they have power and they have dignity. And they surround God in His throne room. And they're dressed in white. And they're decorated with these golden crowns. And there's this big band and there's fireworks. And God oozes power. And when His power oozes out, the earth shakes. Everything shakes. And there's lightning storms. It's magnificent. It's overwhelming. I mean, John's trying to describe it. And then next to the 24 elders are these interesting creatures. And they're covered with eyeballs, right? I mean, inside and out, he says. He says it twice because he's trying to, he's like, I looked and I, I saw these creatures. They had eyeballs on the front of them and on the back of them. In front of them and behind them. He tells us twice because he's still trying to figure out what, what, is, what is going on here, right? But there's this interesting description of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seems to be this sea of glass. And the sea of glass is keeping John just far enough away from the action. Not as something that's separating him, but something that's giving him comfort. Because being in the presence of God is overwhelming. It's magnificent. And it's incredible. And how do we know, how did Moses do in the presence of God? He was on his knees in silence. How did Daniel do? I mean, you think of all the great Old Testament characters who are in the presence of God, their reaction was, and so John feels probably some comfort from the sea of glass that stands behind him and all the action that's going on. But but then you have these strange looking creatures, right? Eyes all over them, three sets of wings, one with the head of a lion, One with the head of an ox, the other with the head of a man, and one with the head of an eagle. And again, it's not about what they are. It's not about trying to understand what they are. It's about what they are doing. And in Revelation 4, what are they doing? They're singing out, shouting at the top of their lungs, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And their task is continually, perpetually, constantly to worship God. And here's what's crazy, because the elders, they follow the creatures. When the creatures start singing, whenever the creatures sing out loud, the elders, they bow down. They worship. They remove their golden crowns. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, you were created and have their beads. And so these crowns, what are they? We, we call them, you know, our crowns of righteousness, right? How many of you have ever said this? Whoop. There's another jewel in my crown. Anybody? Come on. Anybody thought about, I have. I want a big O crown. All right? Big O, that's Oklahoma for big O. Okay? 
I mean, seriously, right? We, we sometimes think about, well, I want to go do this thing, and I, you know, there's a jewel in my crown, or I had to go deal with that person. Here's a, here's a jewel in my crown, right? Anybody ever said that, seriously? Okay, like, okay, some of you stopped lying and honestly told me, yes. But this is, this is the beauty of it, right? This is the beauty of it. Because these are their accomplishments. These are the elders' accomplishments. These are their victories. This is the authority that they have. But this is the truth. All of our accomplishments and all of our victories and all the authority only matters as long as it brings glory to God. That's what we're seeing. That's what John's telling us. All of these things that we might earn or, you know, heavenly treasures for only matter as long as they bring God glory, as they bring Him honor, as they bring Him praise. So on Christmas Eve, I spoke about uh, chapter 5 of Revelation. If you were here and there are these tons and tons and tons of angels, and they're singing. And this chain reaction happens where every breathing being in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, they start singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to be praised forever. And what we see is God is joined. Chapter 4, He's there alone in the throne. But in chapter 5, guess who joins Him? Jesus, the Lamb. And so we get this picture, we get this picture that all created beings will worship God with all we are, but only when we see God for all He is. Does that make sense? That's what John's going through. He's trying to describe because all of a sudden he can see God for all He is and for all He's been and for all He's going to be. And John's seeing all creation worship Him with all they have. And that's what I think worship should be. And so I want to share with you just three observations about worship. The first thing is this. It's, it's what I call the nature of worship. It's the nature of worship. And here's the risk. I think there are some concerns concerning worship in our churches. And the first one is this, that we have determined that worship is all about music. Who said that? Right on. We've determined that worship is all about music. Now see, what I'm doing is I'm preaching, and communion's communion, and offering's offering, and the greeting, welcome, and all that. But worship only happens when we are singing. And that's what I think a lot of people have done. And here's what I know. I think that music is a marvelous tool for worship. I love music. How many of you love music? How many of you get in your cars and you have music playing? How many of you play music at your house or at your jobs, right? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're kind of wired for music. We, we like music. All of a sudden, we'll hear something. We'll start tapping our foot. And you wonder, why am I tapping my foot? We, we just are. We're just wired for music. And so music is a wonderful tool to help us worship God. But there are some other aspects, some other tools. Bodily posture, silence. I like telling my kids all the time, why don't you worship God in your silence, Right? <laughs> If you'll just shut up, you're worshiping, right? Husbands, don't use that on your wives. I can tell you from experience, it's not a good idea, all right? So seriously, silence. One of the things I love about week three of Rooted is we do a prayer experience, and part of the prayer experience is just being silent. And some people are like, you want me to what? For how? What? And then every time those people, those very people who are like, you want me to go like not like anything? Yeah. And they come back, they're like, I've never done that before. That was amazing, 
right? Silence. How about, how about meditation? How about Bible reading? How about drama? How about architecture? How, how about fasting and prayer and journaling? All of these things, because each of these things can begin accomplishing things in us that are tools that music can't even touch. And so one of the things I just want to share with you is, is worship isn't all about music. It can't be. Worship is so much more than that. The second concern I have is that worship becomes about what we do. It becomes about an action instead of a, an awareness. The Old Testament worship basically consisted of what was done to the temple. You would go to the temple and you would perform your acts of worship. That's what you would do. You were required to do that if you were going to be in good standing with God. And so the Greek word that used to describe this kind of uh, worship was letreo. It's, it means service, literally. It describes what we do in the presence of God. We, we do service. We do these things. And some of us, unfortunately, we still carry on some of that Old Testament tradition. The problem is the New Testament calls us to a different kind of worship. In our study of John, we learned this, that Jesus put it this way, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in both spirit and in truth. And so this kind of worship described as proskuneo, which means to kiss forward. I mean, think about this for a moment. It means literally to acknowledge that God is so big and so vast that literally you would kiss forward. And, and it, tra- it got translated to where literally a king, it would be a bow down and kiss the ring of a king. To where our practice today is literally to, to bow down before Him. That's what it would be about. And so worship is the, in, in its essence, is showing reverence to God. It's giving Him honor. It's giving Him glory. And so it's not about what we do. It's about who we are aware of. Can you hear that? Because that's a big difference. And it's going to matter a lot when we think about worship. It's not about what we do. It's about who? And it's so important for us to acknowledge this. How can we know we've really worshipped? How can we know? Well, this is the second travesty in churches. We've made it all about how I feel. Right? Worship is good as long as I feel good. Right? How many of you have ever gotten in the car and thought, that was an okay Sunday? It's all right. All right, right? Tom was a little off this week. He's a little off every week, but he was a little bit more off this week, right? I might resemble Josh's remarks, all right? Who's this little short, squarish, roundish, with little glasses guy talking to us, right? I, I get it. I get it. I get it. I, eh, whatever. Anyway, I love you all too. But seriously, think about this. How many of us have ever gotten in and, and all of a sudden what we're doing is we're filtering church, our, our worship experience, our gathering with God's people based on how I feel, right? And so what we've done throughout history is we've made church worship about, it's inward, it's about me. When church worship is nothing about the inward, it's all about the outward it's about him that's what we see john and this is amazing because this is what happens all of a sudden we have our preferences right and i'm not bashing preferences don't hear me say that but john didn't say hey it's a little too loud in here did he in the presence of god oh could you tone down those jewels they're too bright is that what john did no 
did we see John complaining about the angels singing, holy, 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 all day long. Could they stop? Why did you do some more songs? Did they? No. No, because in the presence of God, when it's outward and not inward, all of a sudden, God matters, not me. Worship puts God in perspective, and all of a sudden I realize, I realize that I'm much smaller than I thought, and He's much bigger than I ever imagined. And so today, one time this year, you'll get in your car, and when somebody starts to complain about church, you'll think, oh, I'd better not do that. And we'll be back to normal next week, all right? <laughs> but do you hear what I'm saying there? See, our worship needs to be outward. It needs to be towards Him. And so this is the question. Worship is about what we're aware of, not what we do. Now, what do we do at Mountain View? We try very hard, very hard to kind of roll out the red carpet. I I don't want this to be about me. I don't want it to be about Josh, the worship team. I don't want it to be about anybody else who's up here. Really, what we're trying to do is roll out the red carpet so that you can have an encounter with Jesus today. Because if you can experience what John experiences, your life will be radically changed. It'll be radically changed. But if you're here trying to figure out how you want to feel, there's nothing that we can do to help you. There isn't. There's nothing. There's nothing. If this is an inward thing for you, worship will be lame. But when you begin to realize who God is, all creatures... All the created started to worship Him. That's why the psalmist writes, the trees worship and the oceans and the mountains, they bow. All creation worships. So am I aware of who He is and what He has done in my life? That's the first key when it comes to worship. Then there's the object of worship, right? And I've really already given this answer. Revelation chapter 4, who do we see on the throne in the throne room? Try that again. In Revelation 4, we read it. There's a throne room. There's a throne. Who's on the throne in the throne room? God is. This is really important because it's not me. And it's not you. It's God. God's there. And He's on the throne. And He's in the throne room. Therefore, the object of our worship is Him. Not us. Not anything else. He is. And then Revelation 5, who do we see joining him in the throne room on the throne? The Lamb, Jesus. And he is there and he is worthy. He is the Lion and he is the Lamb and he is worthy of our praise. Do you hear that? Man, it's so important for us to to wrap our head around these things. And so then we have the purpose of worship, right? And the purpose of worship is what? Well, I think there's a couple of things for us that the purpose of worship really does accomplish. And, and, and here's the deal. I go back to Hezekiah. All of a sudden what happens is in, in our worship, and I've said this a few times now, in our worship, guess what? We are much smaller than we thought and God is much bigger than we ever imagined. Worship does more to us than we realize. It just does. And so this is what happens. Worship probably does more than we could ever imagine. And so why do we do it? Well, we notice the crowns of the elders, right? And I love this. I love this picture because all their accomplishments and all their, all their dreams were, were envisioned and, and these rewards and they testify about all the authority they had and the life well lived that they actually lived. But what do they do? Those crowns come off and they give them over to God and they say, you and you alone are worthy 
of all of these things. And so worship helps put our recognition on God. That's what worship does. Sometimes we can come in and think, man, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Look at all the things I've accomplished. Look at all the things I've done. Look at what I've been able to do. And it's sure, I'll give God credit, but really we know it's all me, right? No. What worship does when we truly enter into the presence of God and we imagine Him in that throne room on the throne is we start focusing not on anything else around us. Not on anything else around us. For a moment, for a moment in our week, God gets all of our attention. When we sing holy, holy again, I believe for a moment with one voice we gathered together and God was at the center of our hearts. That's what happens. That's what happens. Another thing that happens is worship comforts us in our affliction. It just does. Why? Because we realize that for my issues, my struggles, my trials, my, all the heartache that I have, the pain that I have, it's nothing compared to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is so overwhelming that for a moment my pain subsides. For a moment my affliction is put into perspective. For a time being I have real peace, peace that can only come from Him. And peace that's from Him because I recognize Him as the key. Do I believe this? This is the question. Do I believe worship is the first line of defense against my enemy? Here's what I know. Satan hates you. He hates me. He hates our kids. He hates our families. Seriously, Satan hates us. And with Hezekiah, his first line of defense was what? Worship. Do you believe today? Do you believe today that when we're fighting the enemy, which is happening continually and constantly, that our first line of defense is worship. I hope today you leave knowing that and knowing that God is so much bigger than you could have ever imagined. That's what John wants us to know. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thank you for these few moments to just picture a little bit of what we can't see with our own eyes, to picture what we can't experience right now. God, I look forward to the day when I can be in that room and I can be singing, holy, 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 worthy are you, Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And God, I think all of us, really deep down, we long for that. And in the meantime, God, I thank you that John gave us a picture of what it really means to worship and how we can worship right now where we're at. God, in the midst of our hardships, in the midst of our difficulties, and in the midst of being diagnosed with cancer and divorce and, and broken relationships and, and being broke and, and, and struggling in poverty. And God, in the midst of all of that stuff, you are still God. And gathering together with God's people like we've done today reminds us that you're God, you're in control, you're sitting on the throne in the throne room. Jesus, our lion and our lamb is right there at your right hand. 
God, what I want for all of us today is to believe this and know this and that we would experience a little bit of worship every day of our lives because worship is our first line of defense against the enemy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.